Listener Production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm in Melbourne for this episode at the office of Mark Scaife, one of the greatest race drivers in Australian history. A touring car champion, a Bathurst legend who these days lends his incredible insights to the supercars broadcasts and is involved in track design and various automotive industry projects. Cars and racing have always been in the family, but the history goes back further than I realised. My grandfather came back from World War II and he was the one that actually set the original tyre businesses and stuff up. So he uh, came from Townsville, he ended up settling in Newcastle after the war, come down to Gosford, worked for a couple of tyre places and then ended up setting up his own tyre service. And uh, Dad obviously worked within that uh, was always a bit of a petrol head and a bit of and, and, a, and a bit of a bit of a rogue. Um, he, uh, I remember his first car, which is like buying a you know a Brock Commodore, was a was a EHS four Holden, which he uh, which he went on to ride off on the old Pacific Highway. So <laughs> racing a bloke on a motorbike. So um, so he had quite a, an adventurous um, bit of a, a lad's life and uh, one of the great things for me was you know that I spent so much time with him around car racing and so he pretty much through the business bought his first race car which is a LJ uh, Toronto XC1 and uh, that was in the early 70s and then from that day on basically the, that racing that he did I was just a young bloke hanging around and from the time that I was five or six used to go to the race meetings with him and and, and watching say for instance at Emeru Park um Seeing you know Bob Morris versus Colin Bond in XU ones, um, you know under the Rod Hodson Tower there at, at the final corner, or or uh, sitting on his on his uh, shoulders at uh, the dog leg at Oran Park, you know watching Alan Moffat in the Coke Coke Mustang and stuff. So I had really early memories of, of you know great car racing. I can hear it in your voice that he played a big part and, and a big influence on your career. Yeah, look, I would have learnt much more about car racing from Dad than anybody else. I mean, he he um, he had a really good feel for it. For he was a businessman racer, so it was hard for him to probably get to a level of his own racing that was as good as he would have liked because he he drove better than than the results show because he just had to apply himself to make a quid and um, and and to be fair by the time that I got to, I was playing a lot of rugby league and stuff in those days and by the time I got to an age where I went go-kart racing his emphasis changed from his own racing to, to me and um, and he did you know pretty much everything for me in that way and uh, but he, you know he was he was he was bloody hard I mean he uh, his level of expectation and and attention to detail and wanting things done properly was extraordinary. You know, I, I remember at the New South Wales Go Kart Championships at Gilgandra, um, he pretty much employed a guy who was a seven time Australian champion to to help me and go with me because Dad couldn't afford to be away as much. So Don McLean, who was a great guy in those days, um, he, he used to hang around with Glenn Seaton and I, and and Don took me out to the race out there. And when Dad arrived out there for the weekend, he got out there for Saturday morning, 
on the front of my I had two carts and of the time they were both factory carts and and one of them had black wheels on the front and silver wheels on the back and when he got there, he went absolutely off his mind that, that we were in the tyre business and we couldn't we couldn't fit a set of wheels on a cart that were, that matched. So that's a really good example of how hard he was on me in those days. And 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 the great thing was it, it taught me so much in that way because I, it was my responsibility every day after school to have everything ready and going. So we'd have there for 100 packed. If, if I had forgotten anything, it was always, mate, we're, we're going home. Like, so, you know, it was it was a level of preparation and stuff that already stood me in good stead. What were the family cars in the garage back then? I reckon there's some stories about a Holden ute from memory. Is that right? <laughs> oh, well, we had, we had a lot of Holdens. In fact, my, my pop first started buying Holdens for the tyre service, you know, a long, long time Um sort of before dad got involved in the whole Holden part and and then we had um he always had the latest statesman dad always had the latest statesman uh, and then we had basically seven or eight of the of Holden Utes or one tonners uh, and then in the end he ended up with you know an F100 and stuff so you know we had we had a lot of fun he, he uh, you know in those days you know Wyong was um a country almost seaside area that people went and holidayed from Sydney, but it was also a rural area. So a lot of farming out through the valleys at Yarramalong and Duralong. Um, you know, our businesses, our tyre businesses basically serviced all those farms. We did all the tyre work for all the contractors on the freeway from Sydney to Newcastle. So Dad and I would go and fit earth mover tyres like, you know, I was only a little bloke and we'd, we'd be in the truck and we'd head out there and we'd work all night. We got a hundred bucks to change uh, unfit and fit uh, earth mover tyre in the day. Uh, but yeah, the tyres were worth three or $4,000 in those days. So so the, the whole business part of what that did for me was also a big part of the learning because, you know, in this mad world of, of car racing, we often miss the reality of life and how expensive car racing is and all the things that coincide with the work ethic required to go well. Mm. And um, again, that was uh, that was a pretty harsh period. Was there a well-worn path from the New South Wales Central Coast down to, say, places like Pennant Hills Road in the northwestern Sydney? That's a major arterial. And did you ever damage a ute? And what did you tell Dad if you did? Oh, Rusty, I went through a phase where I crashed so many of his cars. Seriously, it was so bad. And I, it was just like a really bad runabouts. <laughs> I, I crashed. I bought a, a Ford ute. I crashed it. I crashed Dad's Brock Commodore because I was perving at a girl in the main street of the entrance when Dad Dad was Dad was overseas and I was looking at this absolute gem in the main street of the entrance and everybody stopped. So I wrote the front of his best uh, best Commodore off. I had to get that fixed before he got back from Singapore. Um, I I went to Sydney with my girlfriend and I hit a bloke on a bike coming off the, the bottom of the Carl Expressway and, and um, I had to get out very fast and tell him what a great ride it was because he didn't actually fall off after, after I hit him but it pulled the left hand front bumper and stuff off my girlfriend's Gemini um, and then and then the last one was that I was I dropped my laser down to Barry Jones at Jones Speed who was preparing the car at those, in those days I was down there a lot and anyway I dropped the car down there I still had the trailer on and I come back along Pennant Hills Road and I and 
I had my girlfriend with me. We were blazing along and this bloke cut me off and I had half a race with this guy. As it turns out, I topped the little rise just (laughs) and the traffic stopped. And So I ended up, I veered to the left hard, missed the traffic, but I went straight across a clearway sign. Anyway, I hit the clearway sign. I had to get Ange to get out, jump up and down on the clearway sign, back, back off the clearway sign and drove it home. Well, it actually did a fair bit of damage. So I get home and I cleverly parked the ute right down the back of our property front in near our granny flat so that the army wouldn't see it and i was checking his mood before i spoke to him so and because he's seriously he comes from a long line of overreactors like he's just he's he is mad so so finally i get the the courage to say oh mate i put a bit of a mark on the front of the ute so Immediately, he runs, you know, marches down with that stern look on his face he used to get, and he gets all frothed up. And he walked to the front of the ute, and he looked at me. He said, "Put a fucking mark on the front of the ute." <laughs> so he, he said, "You read the front of the ute off." And then it was like a comedy because he's standing at the front of the ute, and I'm at the back, and running, so I'm running around, running around, running around, running around. And it was it was seriously like a cartoon skit. Mum's yelling out, "Russell, Russell, Russell!" You know, because he's going to kill me if he gets me. Lucky I could run and. Uh, Anyway, so that was, as he walked away, all disgruntled for not being able to belt me, he walks away and he goes, you're not driving another car of mine ever. That was it, I was banned. And it ended up that I, uh, even then when the laser series come along, which is sort of the end of all this, is is I crashed the first laser. I wrote the first laser off before the race, before the first race meeting. I hit a cement truck clowning up in, in the industrial state and it basically cut the car in half. Like, it wrote it off. So so this is a Saturday morning. We finished work, you know, uh, one o'clock. I'm speeding around the thing. No one was ever there in those yeah. days. But I didn't realise that the cement trucks were being washed. So when I arrived at this quarter, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't like it normally is. There's road base and stuff everywhere. And I was speared into this... this uh, Full Ari Vartanen, were Full Ari Vartanen. <laughs> Full Ari Vartanen without the skill. And, uh, and and wrote it off, so you can imagine. So the old man arrives. Oh, my God, what a day that was. And uh, in the end, he went down to his mate at the ELN uh, Ford um, uh, franchise down on the Tugger Strait at Wild, down to Neil Oven, and said, I think we need another one of those red lasers because the other ones look very nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's how it started. <laughs> I spoke to Glenn Seaton earlier in the, the podcast series. You both did your car racing licence test in his dad's Ford Capri. Tell us about that. Yeah. They've, they've kept it, which is tremendous too. I think the family, it's awesome. Yeah, it is tremendous. And, and we had a really great relationship. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it later because I think a lot of the things about about car racing and the rivalries and all those things, you know, the Seatons and Glenn and I in particular, you know, we raced against each other for such a long time, but we, we knew each other from when we were really young. And, and, and Dad was great mates with Barry, with Bo Seaton and... Um, yeah, they had two Amco um, Capris together in Sydney, you know, in the mid-70s. And, um, you know, they used to basically hang out, you know, a lot together as, as friends and colleagues. So so we were, we were good mates. So the the way that Glenn started go-karting, I basically replicated two years after. In those days, 14 was the sort of first first of the junior categories you could get involved in. And uh, Glenn started and I sort of watched it. And, and then as soon as uh, I got to 14, uh, I did the same thing. So, you know, we were, we were really good mates for a long time ago. Am I right in saying that your first proper 
car race was in uh, an XU1 that your dad had had, uh, had worked on, and, and was it Amaru Park that was the very first car race? How was that? Yeah, so um, so I got my licence in Barry's yellow uh, Capri, which was the, as the car that Glenn did too, and, um, and that was at Oran Park. And then from there on, we looked around. I was still doing some go-kart racing, and Dad looked around. He ended up buying uh, an XG1 from Mark Winterbottom's dad, oh, from no. from uh, Jim Winterbottom. And uh, so we went, picked it up at Frosty's place. Um, dad and I did a fair bit of work on it. We we sort of tidied it up, and then and then we took it down to Bo Seaton, who did the engine, and we had a lot of stuff from old XU1 days. In fact, Dad had a stack of stuff from Bob Morris's old XU1, so we, we put a lot of the shocks and stuff in there and then obviously the tyre technology and things were better by that stage. But um, the car ended up being really good. We had a lot of fun. It was probably it was probably in Sydney at the time. It was the best six-cylinder sports sedan in Sydney at the, t- at the at the day, and I had a lot of fun. So we, yeah, so we, the first race was uh, Emory Park, but I did mostly Emory Park and Oran Park. Um, and I... And I a great story with that first race meeting was that I'd failed my driving test the day before. For your road license. Road license. No way. What happened? Absolutely. Well, I got failed for overconfidence. So, <laughs> so uh, the the bloke asked me to do a hill start and a three point turn. Uh, and I did that, but without heel, I just did a healing and towing. So I didn't use the handbrake. Mm-hmm. So he failed me for overconfidence. So when it, when he failed me, because I, I was organised with the F one hundred and the car all loaded to drive it down to Amaru Park. Well then I then I failed. Well then I failed the licence, and I couldn't drive it. So Dad had to put one of his mechanics on to take me down and go and drive the car. I already had my race licence. <laughs> So you can imagine the old man. So he walks around to the registry office and he gives these blokes the biggest spray of all time. Um, because, you know, we had so many people working for us in those days who were, you know, they, they serious. They were Muppets. They battled to drive a car. And this, this bloke files me for overconfidence. So Scafey totally tapped out. Oh, it, was, it was not nice. It was not good. Anyway, so we got over that. I failed the thing. That my first drive. So this, this was really interesting. It's a, and it, it's a little curved system of, of, of the old man's thinking. And I reckon it's a little insight into how we view uh, OH&S and taking risks these mm-hmm. days. So I because I couldn't drive down, I didn't get to qualify at Amaru Park for my first race meeting. And because Dad knew Ivan Stibbard and the operators of the ARDC of the day, on Saturday it's hosing with rain and I do no practice. So Sunday, so effectively Sunday morning it's hosing and Dad's pleading with Ivan to use his discretion by the stewards to let me start at the back. So I'm 17, just failed my road licence two days earlier. I'm 17 and it's hosing with rain. And if you remember what Amaru Park was like when it rained, like the water ran off that hill like you couldn't believe. So, But but he was totally fine. He had enough confidence that, that A, that I was capable and, and competent enough to go and drive the car and, and that he didn't think, well, I don't. I think he liked me. I didn't think he wanted to hurt me. He he, he really wanted me to drive in the wet. So I start last. Uh, there were seventeen cars in the field. Uh, I ran six and got the fourth fastest lap time. And it was those days of John Tessarero yes. and all those blokes in Volvos. And there was you know quite a good field of sports sedans. But 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 Dad, in an interesting way, because to me it to me it really demonstrates. 
people who, you know, yes, they're willing to take a risk, mm. but B, they've got enough level of understanding of what that competency is to actually decide on what's right or wrong. Mm. And, you know, in a mad world today that we live in where we're just so risk-averse, yeah. you know, we, we spend our lives trying to mitigate risk, that was a really good example of, of that being really risky and me in the end really enjoying it and and it was a lot it was a life-changing day i mean i was spearing around in the rain sliding around in the, in the wet at one of the most unforgiving racetracks in australia no problem at all great experience and and one that you know uh it wasn't about ticking boxes it was like clearly knew this would be a good thing for you right environment you know Super, super. Let's talk. Let's talk lasers because the second car I ever owned, mate, was a was a gear KB one point five, little front wheel drive. It tells speed. me a lot about you. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I'm sure it does. I thought I was. I thought I was hot shit. It got stolen, but that's another story. What for, color was it? it was blue. Oh. It was blue. <laughs> Tell me about yours and the the mods they did to them. The highly competitive thing because it was a one make series, wasn't it? Well, it was more money to win a laser series race in those days than it was to win a touring car championship race. Wow. So it's three thousand dollars to win a race. Cars are only nine and a half grand to buy and about, it was about three or four grand worth of additional stuff you had to buy, the wheels and the motorcraft performance parts that had to go in. Um, and then we obviously had to roll cage it and stuff. I know Bob Riley, who uh, you know is a famous guy from Sydney, used to work for Bondi. Mitsubishi um, Rally Art as well. Mitsubishi Rally Art, yeah, really good guy. He uh, he actually did the roll cage for us and stuff. So, um, so yeah, as it turned out, it was, I think, there was 56 entries and it could only start 26 at uh, Amaru. And uh, in the first in the first one, uh, I ran third, uh, which was actually Lauren Park. And then and then as the year went on, it was sort of my I, I felt like it was one of the best things I've ever done because on a, on a really level playing field, I got I got to race against some really good operators of those sorts of cars. You know, Mark Gibbs, Ken Douglas, mm. uh, Peter Dane, Steve Williams. Um, David Brabham, you know, so David Brabham and I had a ripping battle in the second year of it, mm-hmm. um, and fortunately, you know, w- was, was able to go okay. So, and, and that's really where I got my drive with Freddie because someone said to Fred, oh, "You should have a look at this kid," which I know who it was. It was Barry Seaton, <laughs> and and uh, and Barry um, had told uh, Freddie that I was going okay in these things, and on the particular day that he came to see me, which which uh, I didn't know that he was there. I had to start at the back of the field and I won the race. And uh, and uh, he, from that day, sort of had followed me enough to, to think, you know, maybe I can give this bloke a, give this bloke a go. But I, I ended up making money out of it. So not very many things in junior motorsport categories could you make money out of in car racing, but I seriously made money out of it. And even to the point where I I called every Ford dealer in Melbourne because the, the, the Goodyear Car Owners Club series was Sydney-based. Mm-hmm. And then there was a motocraft series in Victoria, and Dad and I would drive down uh, on a Thursday night, we'd practice on the Friday, do the weekend's race, and then we would drive back on the Sunday night and I'd open the business again at 8 o'clock on the Monday morning, right? So it was all that business stuff that we had to keep on going. Non-stop, we're talking a 1,000 Ks. Exactly. Yeah. Drive all night together, get back and, and, and open the shop up. So Because we had to. It's the only way we could afford to do it. So um, I called every Ford dealer in Melbourne. No one would put a sign on the car for any sort of money or anything and I ended up calling Stillwell Ford and a gentleman by the name of Ron Kaplan said, Mucky, I've seen you driving in the thing in Sydney. I said, listen, Ron, let's just do a deal. Whatever I win in prize money, you equal it. 
and it was a thousand dollars for the Victorian one. So we won every race. <laughs> so we got six grand out of out of Ron Kapler plus the six grand of the thing. And as I said, I made money out of the Sydney series and the Victorian series. So as I said, not very often do you make money in those uh, in those junior categories. So you did an apprenticeship with Fred Gibson, who you you mentioned before. Tell us how that came about, and obviously he'd spotted you with you know the way you're talking there in the in the laser series. What was the apprenticeship, and what was he like as a boss? And I mean, legendary team owner, Supercars Hall of Famer, uh, winner at Bathurst. Obviously, that would have been cool. Oh, look, it was very cool, and he didn't promise me anything. Basically, I, I, I come to Melbourne to work with the team and see how I fitted in. He gave me two hundred dollars a week. And and I was basically the gopher, come mechanic, come whatever. Um, uh, and we ended up doing in the end, we ended up doing all the special vehicles, cars. So we did. Um, we actually made quite a lot of money out of one side of the workshop. With the other side of the workshop, spent a lot of money, as as, <laughs> as in the the factory Nissans, um, Skylines especially. Um, but on the on the positive side, we made a lot of money as the as the special vehicles department and all the engineering and product supply for that, uh, which was a great a great sort of sense of business and acumen for me in those days. And and as I said, Freddie didn't make any promises, but he he was fantastic. I mean, he was the Roland Dane of of the day, um, the best race team operator, and and a guy that you know knew a lot about the cars based on his own experience, but his own mechanical prowess, and and employed the best people of the day. Um, you know, it was it was a great journey. You know, we, you know, we're lifelong friends. In fact, you know, they Fred and Chris are sort of like a, a second family. You know, we still see them a lot. They were over for barbecue at our place last week, and you know, it's it's a it's a beautiful you know relationship because uh, he had a lot of faith in me, and I keep on saying to him that I made his shitbox cast look good. <laughs> <laughs> I risked my life for him. <laughs> Is there a story of legend about Grant Jarrett <laughs> at Bathurst in '87? I think you guys were paired together in the Gazelle, and and some suggestion from something Freddie spoke about, Freddie Gibson. That about a stunt double to ensure that the car qualified within the, the mandatory cut made the qualifying cut. Well, Bathurst that year was basically the the Gazelle or the Sylvia was in the same class as the BMW M3s. So as the factory uh, BMWs were all trying to beat each other, and that was mad, you know, because like there were Chicotto and Rivalia and all the. Superstars all trying to beat each other, and Jimmy Richards. So in the end, that the number that we had to get to was really being hurt a lot by how fast the BMW ended up going, and then Richo ended up beating them all. So the qualifying number was actually pretty hard to meet for the Gazelle. So I'd qualified, which was fine, but my co-driver couldn't qualify. So we we come in, we go out to the back of the uh, of the garage area. I put, uh, we had the same suits, but I put his helmet on and straight out we went <laughs> and I had to do a mad lap to uh, to do uh, a time that was going to get my co-driver in or we were going home. So that, that's true. That's, uh, that's, um, that's not an urban myth. That's actually, that's actually true. You're the first one to have picked up on it, but you wouldn't get away with it today. In fact, you'd get hung for it today. <laughs> You won the Australian Two Litre Touring Car Championship in in eighty seven in a in a Gazelle prepared by by Gibson. So does the S twelve is that what it was? I'm trying to think what uh, what body shape it was. Yeah, well, it was the Sylvia. Yes. So yeah, so it was a bit of a um, sort of a, a swept back coupe, um, and it was a little. It was actually a really good little car. I mean, from a balance perspective, and and a good little car to sort of earn 
your stripes and learn the trade a bit. It was actually a perfect car. You know, it wasn't too wild and it had, um, you know, it had a lot of the Skyline parts in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in those days, it was actually, you know, a good, a good grounding car and a, and a good way to get involved. Did it have any little sort of nuances and, and what was the secret to, to making it fast? Uh, well... Look, there, there, there wasn't a lot of um, there wasn't a lot of uh, of tricks in those days because it was Grip A format and you know the weight limit was strictly adhered to and you know we did the own our own engines and both both Seaton and Glenn did the engines for it so it basically you know had a couple hundred horsepower and by the time that we actually got ourselves into a, a point where um, the car was you know in Peter Jackson livery the same as the other cars. Um, we went and did some additional races and again you know for the crc 300 at uh, amaru park in the rain we were third fastest behind jimmy richard's cars behind the, the bmws so so it was and terry shield drove with me you know in those days with that car so it was it was sort of one of those ones where i got a lot of miles and then when i could Fred would put me in the DR30, um, which was just a you know little sort of incentive every now and then just to give me some miles in the other car. But it was it was a, I mean it was a really good time of my career because it 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 taught me a lot. I had to do a lot of the preparation on that car myself. Um, they had a couple of really good blokes that were working with us. Win Win Ellery was the truck driver, so Win could do anything. He could make anything. And Trevor Jones, his nickname was Bones, and Trevor had worked for Fred from way back in Ford, Ford days, Ford factory days. So Trevor and Win and I would uh, basically go everywhere and, and um, you know, a couple of couple of really experienced blokes with a young maniac. And some good people in, you know, the likes of George Fury, later Jimmy Richards, that, that um, you know, for a young bloke coming through, the influence of those kind of people and, you know, that must be huge. Yeah, I mean, I was obviously always sort of really encouraged with, with Glenn and, and um, you know, when Glenn left, um, Jim replaced uh, Cito and, and that was a bit of a weird time for us all because, you know, we were all great friends and, and Glenn went off with Ken Potter and, Peter Jackson to set up his own Sierra team so you know I think that was pretty hard for for everyone you know in those days it was certainly hard for Barry and and Fred um and it was a great opportunity in hindsight for Glenn to go and do his own thing but you know there's always there's always some emotion around you know long-term arrangements like that and the amount of effort that um Fred had put into into Glenn and and probably what was a bit of a wrecker in some ways was the next car so after the dr30 where glenn almost won the championship in 87 had a great battle with with richo um the next cars the the hr31 was this inline six-cylinder turbo skyline which at the start was a shocking car like it was just a dog it was just a serious hound like we had so much work and and to make it a nice car was was um, a very, very big exercise. So in that phase, Glenn could see these Sierras that, you know, there were various suppliers, you know, Andy Rouse and Eggenberger and Johnson by himself. There were various sort of iterations of Sierras that were all going like gangbusters. And, uh, you know, he saw how much trouble we were having in 88 um, with the with the Skyline. So that was sort of almost a, a pivotal point for Glenn in terms of how that was going to roll out. And... And uh, as a consequence, I, I I knew I wasn't ready to step up, but fortunately, um, Fred was able to hire Jim Richards, and that was that was a massive moment for the team, 
he was, I, I would argue, was the best touring car driver in the world in that in that era, and uh, and that was for me a, a great learning exercise. You and Glenn were great mates, you know, by this by this period. I think he talks about, you know, when you hang out uh, in Melbourne, he probably spilt more beer on his shoes. Than- <laughs> it was a shocker. Well, it was, and he used to drink Uzo and Coke, and seriously, it's a shocking drink on your best day. And he. Um, yeah, he would spill. Like by the end of the night, his shoes were drenched, and he just—he he, he was a mess. You know, he, he, on his best day, Cito really can't drink that well. But after a few Uzos, he's just hopeless. You would go on to win Bathurst six times, mate. But your first podium was with Jimmy in '89. How satisfying was that as a as a young bloke at a place that you treasure and and love? Yeah, look, that was um, that was actually really hard. Um, Rusty, because there was nowhere near the level of data. We, we didn't actually have data acquisition in those days. Mm. Um, we just had stack instruments. Um, and, you know, every corner you come out of, you looked at the tacker as to, you know, did you make six and a half thousand revs on the way out of turn two or whatever it was, was, right? That was, that, that was your marker. So you, I never really knew through the course of that weekend, for instance, where Jim was faster than me, you, wouldn't, you couldn't have been able to tell. Wow. There were no sectors, there were no anything. You just got a lap time. And, and I remember um, at one stage in the weekend that I was you know, two and a half or three seconds slower than Richo because <laughs> one, you know, one of the real misnomers around Jimmy is that he absolutely, and so did Brock, they just drove the wheels off the cars. I mean, everyone talks about the yeah, me- mechanical sympathy. What absolute bullshit. <laughs> They they tortured the cars. It tortured them. You know, everything... Jimmy would get out of the car and it was a smouldering shitbox every time. And because he just... But fast. But fast. <laughs> but fast. Man, was he fast. You know, he, well, you think about it, even in the BMW days, he mm. was the fastest. Outqualified every BMW when all the BMW factory teams were here. Mm. So he, he was tremendously fast. And um, But, but you know, you, you can't go fast without a taking big risks and and using the equipment up to its fullest and that's exactly what he did so I, I sort of come out of 89 there and I got better through the course of the weekend I was probably at Sandown I was almost we did all the averages of when we won the Sandown 500 together in 89 um, I wasn't far away from him at all. When we averaged all the lap times, I was only a couple of tenths away from him and I was really sort of happy about that. But I, I was really perplexed by the Bathurst thing because he, he, he smashed me in the early part of the week and then as the, the weekend went on, I got a bit better. Uh, but Jimmy did you know, predominantly most of the driving and we ended up, up third. But but the following season was sort of my, sort of my biggest test because... Um, Fred ran three cars some weekends prior to that, and then in 1990, it was really Jim and I mm-hmm. in the HR31s. And I remember at Christmas time on the deck having a beer with my dad, and I, and I actually said to him, I said, if I, if I can't go as fast as Jimmy Richards this year, if I, if I come out of this year, meaning 1990, if, uh, if I'm standing here at the end of, of next season and and I'm not as fast as him. I said I'll be back back at the tyre service because you know I really thought that it was the pivotal year of my life. You know because he was he was so good. And and the great thing about Richo was that he he never hid anything. If I asked him anything, you know, and on all our debriefs, you know, what are you doing there, mate? You know, why why are you getting back over that side? You use the curb at that particular corner. Mm-hmm. What market are you using? The braking area there. He was totally honest. And the great thing about that relationship was that you know he's twenty years older than me. When we get on like brothers, you know, we've always got on really well. 
because it's been totally honest. You know, mm. he told me things, never tried to hide anything. He told me things. He taught me a lot um, on and off the track. Um, <laughs> but but one of the great things about Richo is he had such supreme confidence in his own ability that he that he didn't worry about telling me whatever that was. Mm. And, and if I could beat him, he was the first one to walk up and shake hands you know, because it was it was genuine competition. Like it was, it, he actually wanted a young bloke to test him. You know, he actually wanted that level of rivalry. And it was was amazing. And the first time I qualified him was Lakeside in 1990. And I, I remember to the day I die, it was probably the best qualifying session of my life. We didn't qualify on pole position, but to, to beat Jim Richards at a wild joint like Lakeside, that was... That was Almost the marker. It was the bang. That was the the moment in time where I, I thought, "I'm going. This is going to be okay." From that moment on the back deck, what did you do? Because in my whole time of working with you, I know how meticulous you are, how how hard you worked in in that preparation sense. But but clearly, you, you must have kind of doubled your efforts or, or, or ratcheted up a notch. Did you for 1990? What did, what, what did you do? Um, I remember thinking that I had to apply myself in a way that I didn't ever want to go to the race track and not feel like I was prepared. So it was sort of the start of me being really fit. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of work in the off-season and because I'd always played a lot of rugby league and stuff, I, I basically was doing a lot of that sort of training, but I was doing more swimming. Glenn and I would go to the pool in the mornings and all that stuff. So so I, I kept on with the swimming stuff. I kept on with my own fitness. I felt better about that. Um, I applied myself. I was, I was doing most of the testing, um, I was in the car a, a lot because, you know, it was also the start of the Australian Drivers' Championship mm. competition too, so I was always uh, either in an open-wheel car or in a touring car. Um, in that year, I think I was in the, in the car 114 days, you know, so it's a lot, a lot, of, lot of time, exactly. Mm. And and I was also doing a lot of tyre testing, which was really good because it was just lots of grind laps, you know, 20 laps of Lakeside, another 20 laps of Lakeside, another 20 laps of Lakeside. And you do that back then too, could t- you? Totally. I mean, it was fantastic. And they'd arrive with 300 tyres and we'd chuck tyres at it for two or three days in a row. So I, I was sort of the beneficiary of a lot of that that was going on in the background as well as my own interpretation of what I needed to do to improve. And um, it, was, it was genuinely the first of the times that we had data recordings so like our first data acquisition unit the the data logger was this, like the size of a typewriter and we would ratchet strap it to the to the passenger seat floor and that's exactly what it was and then we would print it out and it would spit out like a big sort of IBM you know readout and you'd have to hold it up to a light comparing a lap to a lab oh, it was just mad you know you think about now it's just like it's, it's almost archaic but at the same time, as I said, there was a lot of a lot of work that had been done through the course of that year. You mentioned Formula Brab and Formula Holden there before. And Gibson's history also in, includes that in your own. Um, open wheel race car, wings, Holden V6 engine. You won three drivers' championships in that, that period in the early 90s there. The Confederation of Australian Motorsport Gold Star three times. They were the fastest race cars in the country. How hard were they to master? How much of a joy were they to race and drive? Yeah, that that was great. I mean, I, I really relish those years against and against quality competition. You know, uh, Mark Larkin was obviously there. Uh, Crompo was there. Um, guys like Paul Morris, um, Drew Price. Um, there was actually quite a big field of of you know good of good operators. And um, yeah, prior to that, there was guys like Ryan Onslow, and they were they were all 
uh, Warwick Rook Run. There's got a lot of you know people that had come sort of in and out of the category, but through the course of time, the battle I had with Laco you know, was, was pretty cool. And we did our own thing. So we were in a, in the end, we, we had our own first car built, um, uh, SPA car that Gary Anderson of Jordan fame designed. Uh, and then after that, we it's bought Lola, we bought a Lola. It was Heinz Harold Frenson's Lola that I bought from Japan. And uh, we were actually the Lola distributor of the, of the day. So um, there were, were quite you know, diverse programs, and, they were, and there was a lot of learning in those days in terms of aero. Mm-hmm. You know, we were uh, we were basically pioneering a, a stack of stuff, and I, I had Harry Galloway work for me. Um, Pete Schaefer, who was on our touring car program, moved across to to do that. Um, uh, I I had Rod Smith, Anthony Trapp, myself, and Dad and and uh, Freddie would also come along to the race meetings and. And, uh, you know, the old man bought the tyres and Freddie and I found, found a way to fund it. And, um, and it, it, was, it, was, it was great. It was, a, it was a period of my life that I, I reckon I learnt more about the whole of car racing development, meaning they were genuine race cars and there were lots of things that you could, could do that were out of the square that wasn't so restricted around, you know, Group A regulations or whatever the regulations were of the day. Um, and it... And it was a, a program which Freddie loved. You know, he was a real open wheel. He's such a traditionalist. He was he was quite keen to get me into open wheel cars, and and I loved it. I mean, they were bloody good things to drive. I always love a good motor racing backstory. Share with us, if you will, the time you went to Winton. It must have been in the early phase of. of um, this chapter and learning the cars and Neil Crompton was there who you mentioned before who you now work beside um, calling the, the Supercars Championship did he tell you am I right in saying he told you you could hold it flat through the sweeper at Winton is that right he's a dickhead <laughs> he did he did and I believed him and there you go. That shows my wild level of infancy and um, my my stupidity overall believing Goon. Goon said to me, my mate, you can get around there flat. And I was like, oh, right, yeah. Off the road. Then so I come back very quickly and I said, there's no way you can get around there flat. So he, he laughed. He thought it was the funniest thing of all time. Oh, it was very funny. But, but even in those days, because... You know, the Touring Car Championship was still the, you know, the pinnacle. Yes. And so many times we were actually with the Touring Car Championship, we actually were racing on the same day. I mean, I got out, you know, in the end, I won the 92 Touring Car Championship in the Skyline and the Australian Drivers' Championship on the same day, drove both cars all weekend. So, I mean, it just, you know, the, the demand around all that was, was obviously quite extreme. But on the weekends where we were just sort of specifically doing the Formula Holden or the Formula Brabham, it... it it was always a bit, you know, um, a bit more relaxed and, and we had a lot of fun. You know, it was a really good time and there was a lot of camaraderie, you know, guys that actually wanted to race each other. Mm. Um, you know, Neil tried to kill me at um, at Oran Park one day. Alan Jones and Daryl Eastlake were commentating on Channel 9 and he got a bad run out of Sutton so I fired up the inside of him to go across the dog leg alongside each other and... And I look side I thought, by side, side through the dog leg. Exactly, exactly. That was a little bold, and and fortunately to my for my health, and that's why I'm sitting here now with you having fun. Uh, I did back off because I looked across at him, and he was just you know. There are some blokes where they get that level of determination on their face, and he was desperate to stay in front of me. Um, 
and I knew he wasn't going to lift. So anyway, I, I, I lifted off, fired that, but the great thing was one lap later, he left a big hole that I could have driven my transporter through down at, down at the final quarter at BP, and I fired down the inside and got him. <laughs> so it was great. It was a great day. Yeah. You might have a, a level of talent that I could only ever dream of, but we do share something interesting in common, and that is we have both had a steering wheel come off. <laughs> my fault on my own in the Aussie racing car. That's a bit of YouTube gold if you want to search that. An idiot trying to pretend to be a racing driver. Yours was actually overseas in a Formula 3000, I think, wasn't it? Just tell us the story. What happened? Oh, yeah, I did <clears throat> a couple of races in uh, at the end of 1992 uh, at Nagaro and at Magnicor, thinking that for 1993 that we are going to go and do the whole of the F3000 series, which is obviously the series under Formula 1 of the day. So anyway, great field of cars and, you know, really was really really good so I ended up I, I crashed at turn one and, I, and the boys didn't really qualify that we you know we, we sort of tried to fix it, it wasn't really that good and, and we didn't qualify as well as we should have so we're a fair way back and in the morning warm-up I'd in the wet I'd speared off in a similar spot and it and it pulled the left hand wheels off the side of it. it was a canoe so anyway the guys have gone to great lengths to get this thing going again and as we go out onto the grid uh, I said to the truck driver, oh, can you just grab another mirror for the left-hand side? And he forgot the mirror, so he runs over, does that. So it was all a bit ad hoc, and it was my first uh, was my first drive um, in terms of a start. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd done a couple of test days. In fact, the test I did was at Magnicor was when Alain Prost had made his announcement to come back. So you know, the crowd at Magnicor was massive. Like, so so we, we hired the, um, the racetrack um, through... Uh, 3001 International, which was Mike Earl, who went on to have Onyx Formula One team, and um, and uh, and so Mike had hired the circuit with uh, Williams, and and it was and it was chockers, so it was like a like a full on race meeting. Anyway, so I did a little bit of that after we then had the dramas in the in qualifying and and the warm up. I'm getting organised for the start. wasn't that you know um, in terms of just how how late the car was being repaired and all the stuff. It wasn't the best of all preparation I've ever had. And I really didn't know what to do in terms of how to get it off the line. So I sort of asked a couple of blokes and and um, when in doubt, in typical race driver mode, when in doubt, you just basically hold them hard on the rev limiter and they only had a little five and a half inch, you know, little carbon clutch. Hold them hard on the rev limiter and fire them away anyway. So it starts going, this thing's buzzing like you cannot believe how loud it is. And then all of a sudden, whoa, and I dropped the clutch and it, it moted. Like, it seriously, I made three or four positions in no time. It just so happened that when I went to tweak the wheel, the wheel comes straight off in my hand. Oh, oh my God. And I'm busily trying not to give positions away because I've just made ground. <laughs> and I'm trying to – and it, it's a bit like – it's a bit. I had many of those days at the tyre service for my dad, where you you do a wheel alignment on a car, and then you, you've done the wheel alignment. You haven't got the steering wheel quite right, so you'd you'd have to go out onto the road, un, undo the steering wheel, pull the steering wheel off, and tweak it back on. And then some days you can't get the wheel quite back on again. You know, it's a bit clumsy. Well, that's that on steroids, blazing down to the first corner, which I've crashed at twice. And I'm about to arrive there without a steering wheel. One of the most frightening moments in my life. Finally, I was able to sort of drag it back on the spline and 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 got it on there. But that was a frightening moment. How serious were those international ambitions, and how far did you get down the track with that? Uh, look, it, I was very serious about it in those days. You know, after winning the the drivers' championship and the and the touring car championship and Bathurst all in '92, I, I thought the next step is definitely to to go and have a a red hot go at making it into Formula One. 
and Rothmans were great about it. You know, they funded a lot of it at the start, but mostly it was 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 Fred and I. And um, you know, those, those couple of drives at the end of '92, they were they were expensive. Like they're basically 120 grand Australian each. That's a lot then. I mean, it's, it's still a lot now, but and it, well, it is. And, and and the next year effectively was going to be roughly you know 1.8 or 2 million dollars. And, you know, in those days, Greg, there was no, there was hardly any media coverage back here. There's certainly no vision from a race perspective or whatever. So, so you, you had to do it really with, with no recognised value for an Australian sponsor. Um, so Winfield were, were good to, to do that. They were, they were, we were trying to link up with Rothmans International in those days to try to do it. And in fact, we had, we had a million dollars sorted uh, in the off season to go and do it, but, but it wasn't enough. And we basically said, well, you know, we, we can't do it. And it was in that mad transition, probably the biggest transition of of my career, but certainly for Fred, out of the back of Nissan into Holden or, or Ford, because we were sort of jockeying between Holden and Ford as to what we were going to do in the following year. So when the, you know, the decision from CAMS to ban uh, the GDR... When that came out and the change of regulations to what is now the Supercar Series, uh, when that happened, it was it was such a pivotal time. So Fred and I pretty much we sort of had to had to uh, use some discretion and, and get on with the Australian program. That year, ninety two. I mean, you would go on to win five touring car titles, six Bathursts. But I mean, ninety two, mate, to do all of those things in the one year and you you know your first was that. Is that pretty special? Is that the one that kind of stands out in in some ways? Yeah, look, I think it does. I think biggest part about it is recognising the effort. I, I, I look back at it now and go, gee, I'm not sure whether you could do that again. You know, I, I think the... All, all of the commitments, all of the different kinds of racing, you think? Totally. And, and, and you know, racing the same car on the same day at so many places... I mean, in the end, I know it was really good for me, but I also know how much effort and demand was on me at that point. Um, it was massive. And the 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 ability to, you know, get your brain around, you know, a really high-powered, you know, no air road, small tyre, big, powerful GDR that had, you know, a couple hundred kilos of handicapping in those days. They were hard cars to drive. You know, I, I remember having a real argument with Larry Perkins because he thought that we were fudging at Lakeside in the driver's briefing. He was giving Richo and I a spray about us not trying hard when we qualified a fair way down. And I, I remember making him, giving him the offer of, you jump in this superstar and see how you go. Because um, it was yeah, it was pretty volatile. It was a lot of politics and a lot of emotion around the, the dominance of that car in the day. And, and clearly that was all evident at Bathurst with the crowd re- response and the way the crowd reacted So and the way that Jimmy reacted. So, um, but, but it, yeah, it was, it was quite, you know, it was quite a powerful year in that way. And, and at that time, it was the youngest touring car champion ever because that was Pete Gagan just prior to that. So, you know, there was uh, the tw- I was only twenty five. So, you know, you look now at Scotty McLaughlin at twenty five. The same same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, uh, you know, great memories. But I also I, I recognise just how hard it was. Tell me more about that Bathurst podium because it's been spoken about a lot over the years. I can I can remember being a young bloke under the podium as that as that happened that day, and then a current affair the night after, and. Um, you know, Crompo kind of came out, and I think he was um, he was a bit wound up by the the crowd as well. Did he give them? I think he gave them the salute, didn't he? And then <laughs> didn't help. Didn't help. He certainly didn't help. He gave them the bird. Yeah, yeah. So that didn't help. Um, 
and it was it was an emotional race because um, uh, you know Denny Holm, nineteen sixty seven world champion, passed away that day, and uh, and Jimmy Richards knew that. People had told him. Uh, prior to him getting in the car for that next stint that uh, that Denny had passed away, so and and obviously Jim was good mates with Denny, um, and it was such a wild day, Rusty. I mean, uh, you know, we talk about you know rain outs and bad conditions, but man, was that bad that day? Like that was that was just hosing with rain, and and it was um, I, it rained so hard at one stage I, I couldn't even see where the safety car was I actually ran into the back of the safety car in the race um, we, we, you're doing almost the same speed as we do now so you know, you're doing almost 300 kilometres an hour and couldn't see a car length in front of you like it was it was seriously wild so um, to have what happened happen meaning you know was only the rules you know I mean the yeah. the red flag had come out you know, five or six cars were all parked in the fence up there, and 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 Jimmy was on slicks. So so Neil had actually come in. He was driving with Anders Olsen. Neil had come in to put wets on, and and Jimmy had to hold for another lap. So Richard was caught then on slicks. He come out of uh, the cutting and up around the little kink, mm. um, and just went straight in the fence on the left hand side. The waters, the rivers, like rivers of water running down the hill, um, and he was just so despondent. You know, I'll, I'll always remember his face when he come down. One of the medical cars brought him down and. And uh, there was a lot of conjecture at that point and obviously the red flag had come out and there was everyone speculating as to what, what had just unfolded and Jim really wasn't concerned about any of that at the time. He was, you know, he was white-faced and sombre and, 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 you know, obviously disappointed as to what had happened. But it didn't, like, he, he wasn't hurt, but but he was really hurt by what had gone on. And then, um, and then you know, the, the elation, it turned, you know, he couldn't have got too bigger... Um, polar opposites. Polar opposites. Yeah. It was it was this you know distraught figure who then you know in a, in a nanosecond was told that he's the winner of the race, and uh, you know I'm I'm shaking hands with him and the t- and the teams erupted and the whole thing. But <clears throat> when we got to the next bit, which was obviously the podium, it was um it was it was weird because um you know, Neil Neil's cars parked out the front pristine and Dick Johnson's cars parked out the front pristine. Um, Dick had conveniently forgotten that he won the race in similar circumstances, you know, 10 years prior. So um, he'd conveniently forgotten the rule. And uh, and so Neil gives him the bird. Uh, that didn't go down well. Um, uh, Dick's given them a spray that they should have won because the car's pristine. Uh, and then by the time Richard and I got out there, they were, they were far from happy. They were far from happy. And I, uh, they, you know, you, you've heard me say this before, but the backstory is that I started to fill my pockets. I went to the bar, and we both got the Tui's Top Gun jackets, and I started to fill my pockets with beer cans. And Richard goes, mate, what, what, are, we do- what are you doing, Scavey? And I said, well, I'm going to throw a few back. And he went, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. And he said, I'll handle it, don't worry. No, don't, he said, do not do that. I'll, I'll speak, don't you, that's it, right? So, because he could tell how volatile I was by then. And then we walked out and the reaction was just incredible. Like, it was so bad, you know, for a sporting contest to have the crowd react like that mm. on one of the most dangerous days of all time, you'd reckon that you'd just basically applaud the winner and, you know, mm. celebrate what was a pretty wild day. In the end, you know, history tells us that wasn't the case. Mm. And then when he's called them a pack of arseholes, oh my God, it was on for young and old. It was raining beer cans, and man, it was bad. It was. A, you were a bit shocked when you looked at him. Weren't you? Shocked. Oh, well, we, he, you know, he's, he's he's very calm. I mean, you don't get the title of Jim of gentleman Jim for no reason. So he he's normally a very very calm guy. But he he was really affected by that reaction. You know, because because in in the end, it was a it was very much. 
a portrayal of Jim's sporting endeavours. You know, Jim loves and continues to love car racing. Mm. One of the best drivers of all time. On a day where you know his mate had passed away and all the things, all the emotion around all that, and and I think you know in the end he was just disappointed by by what should have been. Uh, a really momentous occasion turned into a, a disaster, and uh, he uh, he gave him a spray, and, and I reckon he'd do it again tomorrow. The fortunate thing for him is that ten years later we were able to win the race together, and he called them a pack of beautiful, oh, wonderful people. You're a pack of wonderful people, so he was he was able he's able to I think get back on on uh, their side. More with Mark Scaife in a moment. Rally champion Molly Taylor is from a family of proper car lovers, competitors and collectors. I spoke to her in a workshop surrounded by Citroëns, Subarus, a rare BMW M3 and one special Audi Quattro. Yeah, it was actually the first one that was ever brought into the country. It was brought in by Audi for the uh, motor show and uh, Kerry Packer saw it and basically said, I want it and don't take it home. Um, and since then, it's had two owners, um, Kevin Bartlett. He looked after the car for Kerry um, and then and then had it and, and we, being rally friends, found out about it through him and, and bought it off him. So we were very, very lucky to, to come across the gem. Listen to the full episode with Molly Taylor here on Rusty's Garage. Regenerative braking, an energy recovery mechanism using the vehicle's momentum to recover energy which slows a vehicle by converting its kinetic energy into a form which can either be used immediately or stored until needed. Look, just Google it. It's pretty complex. I want to um, just focus for people that follow the podcast for a moment on GTR. Um, Where was the first time you drove it? I think it arrived mid-1990 for memory, didn't it? Where was the first time you drove it and what were your first impressions of this legendary car? Yeah, well, the first car arrived as a test car, um, which is basically a Nismo car, Mm -hmm. and it was as rough as guts. Like, seriously, everybody raves about how good those cars were in the day. I mean, fortunately, after millions of dollars and lots of man hours, we were able to make them good. in fact, the Australian cars were the best variants of GDRs in the world by a long way, not by a little bit, but by a long way. So so the first car arrived at Test Car, as you said, it was mid-1990, and we went to Winton with it first. And both Rich and I, we were surprised immediately with its traction, you know, as a four-drive car, and you could program more and less and different types of programming. So it was a real, it was a real technology car, you know, four-wheel steer, four-wheel drive, twin turbo, you know, all the everything you could possibly imagine um, on what was the best device. You know, that was, in from a Group A standpoint, that was the best touring car in the world of the day mm-hmm. and uh, and had won everything around the world. So that was the first foray. What were they like to, to drive and what were the little nuances like with them? I mean, particularly after you detailed before the previous car and the difficulties you, you'd encountered trying to finesse that and then all of a sudden this arrives, okay, with a lot of work to do, the, the mark that you and Gibson made internationally with the machine is, um, you know, is super impressive. But, but what were they like to, to race to drive? Yeah, yeah, well, overall, they were basically... Um, uh, similar levels of power to today's supercars, but but with a smaller tyre mm-hmm. and with n- little or no aero. They probably had lift. I mean, we didn't know. 
but they definitely had no aero. You know, they sort of didn't. Nothing worked from an aero perspective on the cars. So uh, overall, in the fast corners, they were hard cars to drive. Um, in the slow corners, their traction was was remarkable, and that was sort of part of which circuits were easy. You know, places like Malalar or uh, Emory Park, uh, Oran Park was similar. So the places that the car just come out of slow corners like a like a rocket ship. Wellington, for instance, in New Zealand, my God, it was just a jet. Mm. Around there, yeah, you know, we had almost seven hundred horsepower in qualifying uh, in Wellington, and um, it was it was a wild wild device. But but Jim and I, you know, we we had to change our style. So the <clears throat> the way to get the best from the car was to shorten the corner radiuses mm. and to make those cars come off the corner straight. So you had to optimize the traction. Mm. So. Um, you, you break the car as deep as you could possibly break it. We used to call it arrow, so we'd arrow the car towards the corner, mm-hmm. turn it in, minimise the corner radius, and then turn it back on itself almost to straighten the exit, and they'd fire out of corners unbelievably. So the art around what you did in the slow stuff compared to what you did in the fast stuff, because, uh, you know, I promise you, the top of the hill at Bathurst, I mean, I, I, I was talking to Sean Seymour um, from Supercars uh, the other day, and he said, yeah, one of the best laps that he, he loved was the 1991 qualifying lap for pole position at Bathurst, because you can see how much work you're doing with the car, because they were hard cars to drive. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that was one of the things that, you know, we got a lot of fun out of um, through the course of that period. You know, we had great rivalry against each other but uh, we had a a, a thoroughly enjoyable um, period of time Fred talks about and he did this very recently at a at a function I was with him at at Bathurst. Fred Gibson talks about having this a kind of unwritten rule for you and Jimmy that if there was any damage to the car you repaid the crew with cases of cases of beer so what happened when you went to Adelaide that year and recount for us the conversation that Fred Gibson had with Jimmy Richards <laughs> So classic. I mean, it, to to disincentivise us, meaning if we calm us down, um, stop running into blokes, especially um, even from HR thirty one days, we come up with this rule that if you punch the headlight out of it or whatever, you had to buy a case of beer for the boys. So that was sort of the the unwritten rule within the joint. As it, as we went into GDR land, we're, Jimmy and I were both trying to beat each other at Adelaide. Um, and I went onto the back straight, which is where Mika Hackenden had that big crash. It was basically onto Decredible Terrace. And I rode up onto the exit curb and it broke the bottom out of the wheel, turned the car straight over on its roof at about 180 k. And whilst it's skiing along on its roof, you know, the interesting thing was as hard as I pressed the brake, it sort of didn't slow down. <laughs> so it fires into the fence, going hard, spins back around, ends up in the middle of the racetrack. Uh, and unfortunately, Colin Bond and, and Peter Brock actually stopped. It was in qualifying. They actually stopped and helped me out because they couldn't open the car door and it was on fire. So I, I couldn't get out. The marshal yelling, it's on fire. And I thought, oh, this is, really, this is really handy. And it, it had rubbed along the road for so long that um, it actually wore through the A-pillar and started wearing into my helmet. So I got a big scratch marks, big flat section on the helmet going into, into the fence. So that knocked, you know, really knocked me about. But, but I was parked upside down. And Fred immediately, he didn't see me come back around. So he, he, he radios and then it's red flagged. And he radios to Jimmy. He said, oh, Scafey, where's, where's Scafey? Have you seen Scafey? And Jimmy says, uh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's rolled over, coming out of the back straight. And uh, Fred said, what's the car like? He said, I think he owes the boys a small bottle shop. <laughs> So yeah, so yeah, the gag continued, but it was uh, it was far from funny in those days. 
I think I spotted one of the Winfield cars maybe in the in the Linfox or Fox uh, collection. Did you keep one for a time? Is that uh, well, yeah, we did for a fair while, and uh, part of um, Lindsay Fox actually buying the Nissan factory of the day was that he wanted to buy a GDR, in the, and that was actually the car that I won the Touring Car Championship with. So uh, Lindsay's got one, um, which we used just recently for the Bathurst Hall of Fame for Legends Lane, and we were able to get uh, the Foxes to to uh, deliver the car up to Bathurst and have it there on site, which is fantastic. I mean, it's a really traditional, you know, beautiful-looking car. And a lot of – if you have a look at the, the attention to detail and the way those cars were prepared um, you know it's a, it's a real testament to everyone at Gibson Motorsport of the day to, to do what they did I don't want to spend too much time talking about crashes mate but one that springs to mind of course is in the the VP Commodore in pre-season testing at, uh, at Eastern Creek what we now know as Sydney Motorsport Park in 95 you'd won another title the year before what happened that day and how much did that that crash knock you around uh, yeah so it was a bit it was a bit weird because um, 90 Three, so we've just got to go back just a little bit. So '93, we had to convert everything we owned to whatever it was going to be, Ford or Holden. There was a lot of negotiation around how all that happened, and we ended up obviously going to Holden. Um, and uh, you know, for, for anyone that wants to see great racing, you should get on YouTube and have a look at the first race meeting of the championship at Amaru Park. Like it was one of the toughest, wildest races of all time and it was everyone spearing into each other and in the end uh, was was Glenn Seat and John Bauer and myself on the podium. But it was a cracking race, one of the best races I've ever been involved in. And and we worked really hard through the course of that year to to get to a point where the car was developed properly for for 94 and we were able to come out and win the championship in 94, which the first time for 14 years that Holden had won the championship, the last time was 1980 with Peter Brock. So Holden were totally wrapped with us and the whole thing and we went into to 95 going to the later model car and doing a heap more testing with Yokohama and we were actually on that day uh, doing wet weather tyre testing um, and the wet weather tyre testing I was bluing with Yokohama because their first batch or their first wet weather times were actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I kept on saying to them, you've got the compounding wrong. And, you know, within two or three laps, they go away so severely that you, you, you we can't, you know, they're, they're just not competitive. So they'd put a huge amount of effort into getting uh, a new tyre done. As it turned out on that day, it, was, it, was, it wasn't really just light rain. It was actually raining pretty heavily through the course of the day and, and, to be perfectly honest, I was on about my third or fourth run for tyres, and I arrived at turn one on all that drag surface. Yep. Um, Used to the old drag strip as well, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, and they had that surface solution on the road, which is just like ice. Mm. And I arrived down there, turned it in, and it, and it, and it bolted. And I have no memory from the time that I lost control um, to the time that I woke up in Westmead Hospital. Um, so it. it it ended up making contact with the concrete barriers at about 200 k. Um, you know, totally re- uh, destroyed the car, uh, broke like broke the seat mounts off. I was actually sitting in the back of the car. Um, you know, my my eyes had toe in and the whole thing. I wasn't you know, knocked out, obviously, but um, I, I, I broke a vertebra and um, broke a couple of ribs, and um, I had to miss the uh, the first race meeting. Uh, of the championship was at Sandown, and, and the next one was at Tasmania, and I made my comeback there. But uh, yeah, it was it was far and away the biggest crash I had in my career. You talked about resilience very recently at a, at a function I was at with you, and how motor racing um, teaches you that. The end of that 
tobacco sponsorship period and then kind of the scaling back of what Gibson Motorsport were doing from the absolute heights of, of you know, factory Nissan operation and the success that you then had moving into to Holden. Uh, those, are, those are tough career moments, mate, but you, I imagine, learnt a lot at that time. Look, I certainly did. And, I mean, what a lot of people don't know is that I'd had quite a lot of conversations with John Crennan and Tom Walkinshaw about going to HRT. Mm. And I could have gone to HRT a lot earlier. Um, and for lots of reasons, I was I was almost compelled to stay at Gibson's, although we were downscaling. I, I felt a sense of loyalty. And I, you know, 1995 Bathurst, for instance, really was a pivotal time. I, I, I had to make up my mind whether I was going to TWR mm-hmm. with John. And, and John Crennan, I mean, I, I, you know, I've got a magnificent... Mm-hmm rapport with him he's I've learnt so much from him and um, and he was trying I met him at his beach house down at Portsea uh, in 94 I met Tom uh, and John at a Sydney hotel in 94 um, uh, I had various meetings with him again in 95 and, and pretty much the plan behind the scenes was for me to go and join Brock in 96. But because Bathurst and, and the contract that I had with, with Winfield pretty much required because I was signed in as as was Jim, we were actually part of the contract with Winfield and we didn't want anything to, to break that contract. So I ended up, I stayed through the course of 95 and at Bathurst that year, I don't know whether you remember, but at Bathurst that year, we were scheduled to make three stops, one full stop less than everybody else. So we were leading the race and we're going to make one less stop. We were going to win that race by a mile. In fact, I'd almost lapped Larry Perkins when it broke a tail shaft coming onto the main straight, onto onto Conrad Straight. So the car was so superior to everybody else's car. And we had the best fuel economy, the best engine pace, every single facet of that program smashed the field. And at that race meeting, it was a total dominance. and what people didn't really know, obviously, was was all that, you know, it was a massive amount of effort to, to have that, you know, level of, of technical supremacy in those days. So by the time then I got to the end of 95 um, and Freddie and I, you know, we were, we were really struggling, that, that whole thing about Australian sport being sort of placed in a chaotic period of, you know, cricket and rugby league and AFL and car racing, it was $110 million Australian that was taken out of Australian sport. Um and uh, overnight, you know, we went to having white cars with with no sponsor, and um, and it was it was profoundly the most difficult time of my career. Like it was it was a time when we had more than forty people, and we went back to having seven or eight people, and we we're all multitasking, and we we're all doing different jobs, and we couldn't afford to. You know, they 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 in some ways they you know they're really hard, sad stories around you know people's families and not being able to keep people employed and. Now that was a that was a really difficult time. So by the end of that uh, ninety six period, um, John had kept on uh, making inquiry, and uh, as it turned out, I joined Brock for his ninety seven uh, retirement, couple of races, and that was sort of the start of my HRT involvement. Were there some good mentors during that period for you, mate? I mean, you and I have worked with an old boss at Channel Ten, David White. He was he was among them, I guess, that you've dealt with over time. They're probably important people that have that have helped along the way. Oh, look, I've been really lucky, like that, Greg. I mean, I, one of my best mates, 
uh, is Craig Kelly, who you know he was a elite AFL player and you know really good business person, but a great you know great mate. And he he was uh, drafted across to Melbourne in the late eighties when I'd first come down to to Melbourne from Sydney. So we hooked up you know very early on, and our sons were born you know very similar times, so they're six months apart, and we you know we got on really well. So, it was, so Ned's always been a real sounding board. For me, I often say that I manage him more than he manages me, but that's that's another story. But uh, and then and then people like David White. Um, I used to call those blokes the life committee. Whenever I had something going, I, I'd always sit down after, over a thousand beers and, and get Ned and, and David White to uh, to give me some counsel. So um, and, and 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 probably John Crennan become part of that too. As 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 I went into HRT, um, you know that that whole evolution of of going in there and replacing Brock was was a big part of my career and, and obviously something that John was was always very keen to get me to come on side and to be part of that team. So, um, yeah, there were very interesting periods in, in that transition. That was the team then, the Holden Racing team, to, to be with. Great period for you, mate, from VT Commodore to then VX. Is there a favourite race or moment for you and, and is there a car that you have a soft spot for uh, in that period, uh, look, there's there's lots, Greg. I mean, I, I, you know, that was a that was just a sensational period, I, and a lot of it come from the rivalry that that I had with Lowndes. I mean, you know, it, when I watch Shane Van Gisbergen versus Wink Up now, I, you know, I, I think similar things. I, I think when you have two people so desperate to beat each other, it lifts everybody, mm. and and that was a very big part of why we were going so well. Mm. Um, so then when Lowndes left and went to Ford, obviously, you know, I, I was sort of the mainstay and, and Jason Bright uh, arrived. So we, we, you know, we had some, some just some cracking times. And I think probably there's a couple of drives. The, the, the drive from last at Clipsal in 2000, from last on the grid in the rain uh, to win was probably one of my best drives. It was, you know, that was a, that was a really unbelievable day. And, uh, and probably... As a car with a soft spot that links me back to the Richo thing is winning Bathurst that year to win the championship in two thousand and two with, you know, arguably one of my best mates and and um, and for us to win the race and the championship in the one year was was pretty powerful. You talked about you and Craig Lowndes just helping to lift the whole operation. The pair of you just about sent the team boss, Jeff, Jeff Greg Gray, didn't you? <laughs> it was a bit of a test for Jeffrey. It was a bit of a test. but And, and um, he's such a funny, funny guy because he's such an emotional bloke that um, – on the good days, you know, he's got the big Cheshire kit, cat smile and, you know, he loves the... He's a very, very good winner, Jeffrey. but he's a very poor, very poor, very average loser. And uh, on the days where where he and I were battling and sometimes there might have been a bit of panel rubbing or whatever, that was that was a bit of a test for, for Jeff. So, uh, and, he, and because he's so emotional, his reactions were fantastic. And we always knew that when his reactions were like that, then we were getting the better of him. So um, it was... Uh, Not that you traded on that much. We did, we did. Definitely, definitely we did trade on That's a very good terminology. That's what exactly what it was. Um, but... but Again, it was it was two blokes really trying hard to beat each other, and uh, and we and we had a great time. Sport is built on many things. Rivalries are one. You're battling Marcus Ambrose for the title in two thousand and three, and a flashpoint in the sport happens at, at Eastern Creek with his then teammate, your now TV colleague 
Russell Ingle. I think some of the headlines were race rage, you're in the wall, you get out, he swerves at you, you've got the fist clenched. I mean, it was heavy, mate, but it underscored because you were battling for the championship how much it meant to you. And and it was a tremendous period for the for the sport, wasn't it? I mean, it not a moment that, that some might argue um you know, relative to a championship win is, is a tougher one to deal with. But, I mean, it, everyone was talking about it, weren't they? Yeah, and look, I, I think, look, clearly it was the biggest the biggest story in town uh, at the end of 2003. But I think, to put it in context, you've, you've got to go back almost a full year and, and try to understand the sorts of situation and the landscape because of TWR's receivership at the end of 2002. I'd just signed a new deal to drive for TWR and almost within a week of that deal, John Crennan and I were driving along together. We'd just been to a Hugo Boss function and we were driving along together and and John was, you know, arguably one of Tom's real lieutenants. In fact, I would argue the person, the, the single, the person that made the business so great in Australia, you know, is... is just an extraordinary race team come road car business and that you know really was testament to John's expertise and his industry now and his his marketing savvy but um he was he was really concerned that this was going to be you know a pivotal time based on Tom's debt from Formula 1 and all the other projects that he had going of, of the day so as it turned out they went to receivership and then there was this mad um, state of flux for everybody as to what was going to happen with Holden Racing Team and uh, there was a crew of senior executives from Holden who flew immediately uh, to uh, to the UK and uh, via their legal people Mallisons of the day they were able they were able to secure um, the team from the receivers and basically separate the team from the other interests that, that Tom had so there was this this incredible sort of run of events and a, such a difficult you know period of time for everybody um, to get us uh, going in 2003. And I, in the end, um, as a consequence of Holden's request, uh, I ended up buying Holden Racing Team in the off season. And and a lot of it was really personal because I had so many key staff. You know, Robbie Starr, for instance, or Richard Holway, who, who would come up and say, you know, what, what's going on here? You know, they had all got mortgages, you know, they've got kids in school and all that stuff that, you know, we, we don't often think about in terms of the purity of car racing, but it's much more of a family concept and much more of a, of a people's business than we then we give it credit in some ways and, and, and that should never be lost on any of us in the industry. So, so I, I felt... A real level of compulsion almost to do the right thing by the business and, and I negotiated with Holden and, and, to, and to everyone's, you know, everyone was raving about them giving it to me and I, I know exactly what I paid for it and I, and, and, uh, and, uh, I bought it for $3.25 million. So it was a lot of money and, and big risk and, and there was a lot of changes that were being made as a consequence of what I actually bought because they set up Holden Motorsport, which time would tell was one of the biggest disasters of all time. So Holden Motorsport was a separate entity. I had Holden Racing Team. Uh, the Kellys had uh, the Kmart team and, and Keys Wheel went off with the PWR 
outfit. So so there's this mad state of flux around the whole commerciality of whether that team environment could could be sustained, what it, what it could survive. Um, it was it was a, a, a terrible time for Tom. It was a terrible time for John Crennan, who was trying to keep it all intact. Um, there was there was a project blueprint that was just coming in, so we had to change a heap of stuff on the cars. We, we, we changed the engine, we changed all the front suspension layout of the cars, and I come out and won and won Clipsal, and um, and it was and it was a great battle. I battled all weekend with with Ambrose, and 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 it was a seriously you know really good race meeting. And I felt on that Sunday it was one of my best drives. It was and it was actually my wife's birthday, so I I, I went across the line and said Happy birthday, Tone, and 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 the whole thing was. Whew, like, how do we get away with that? With a level of chaos in the background, the enormity of the of the whole thing to have to have changed the car so dramatically, to have got everything in place, to settle everybody down, to keep everybody employed, have all our deals done, have all this done in the background. I mean, seriously, mm. if there's a driver in the field that could have that that, that could today think about how complex that is mm. that, that was just extraordinary mm. extraordinary and and um you know fortunately with a big tick we were, we were able, able to win the first one so so there was a lot of drama through the year and the car wasn't that good because the new engine was on the dyno not too bad but it had um um installed power issues so airbox issues temperature issues, heaps of stuff that we weren't really up to speed with. And we weren't as competitive as we should have been at lots of places. So, you know, Ambrose is raving about how good they're going. They put pressure on us. You know, we had a thousand issues going with with the team and the car. And and Peter Hannenberger, who, you know, was the managing director of Holden of the Day, wanted me to use the latest engine. So he basically requested me to not use the Chev engine, but to go back to the Holden Motorsport engine or to go to the new Holden Motorsport engine um, to ensure that we were, you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday stuff, that we were being market relevant. So, and, and Hannenberger was fantastic. He, he, he was really, really um, supportive of, of everything we did. So, so we did all the right things. I end up a wind sand down, uh, and then we go to Bath and had a drama at Bathurst. And by the time we got to the end of the year, it was basically on for young and old to win the championship. And uh, and there were three of us that could win. And then you know, in this mad um, uh, run back through the field, I passed Ingle down at uh, it's turn eight now, but it's, well, it was turn nine. Uh, and then he, you know, he fired me in the fence. And I, 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 at that point in my career, I, I have never had a worse moment. I I felt like all the things that we'd worked for for the year were gone, um, that it was an unfair, um, really unsportsmanlike um, act. And I, honestly, I've, I've never been so angry. I just, oh man, lucky I didn't get back to the pitney earlier because I, all I wanted was to fight somebody. And um, it, was, it, was, it was an unbelievable day. I... I I remember it very, very clearly, and um, it was um, it was a disaster for, for all of the backstory reasons that yes. people people would not have understood the risk and the level of workload and the demands and the things that had taken place in the background. It was just a, a tumultuous, um, uh, dramatic season for us. Now you work with him. Have you properly <laughs> buried the hatchet? We see some fun stuff on socials and in the broadcast at times. 
But that's a major point in the history of the sport, mate. Have you properly let it go, the both of you? Oh, well, he's had to apologise. He had to apologise with his T-shirt. He didn't like having to wear the T-shirt recently where he says, sorry for firing you in, into the fence. Um, look, you know, we've, we've moved on, but, you know, and, and time does heal those things, but, you know, still... When I, I see the incident, it still uh, it still winds my clock. You went into detail to talk about you know the ownership before there, and you know to do that as a, I think even Glenn Seaton said to me in a previous podcast. I mean, it's just it's an enormously difficult task to be at the peak of your powers, trying to win championships in Bathurst and trying to run an organisation like that. With the benefit of time and and looking back on it, you probably can't do it now that you're you know you've got to be in that neutral position as a broadcaster, but. Would you do it again? Uh, look, I would do it again, and I and I I don't regret doing it when I did it. My biggest regret was that I probably shouldn't have tried to do everything. You know, I probably should have appointed. I put Craig Kelly on to be the CEO, but I was probably a bit late with that. And and what people didn't also know that I I tried to recruit John Crennan across the run up for me. Um, and he really couldn't as a consequence of the HSB business in the day. So so if I had to do it again, my biggest learning would have been to have delegated and to have taken the managerial responsibilities away. Mm. Um, you know, you got you got to write, you know, lots and lots of money in commercial sponsorship and partnerships. You've got a massive demand as the official factory team of Holden. You know, you are their factory team. I, I would have to go in on a Monday or a Tuesday and make presentations as to how we've performed and and people think and it's one of the great things, people think that you know, you're a Holden employee so you own the, you sort of own the team. You know, you've got this sort of sense of responsibility around that factory status. The supporters loved it so much. You know, we had 5,000 members, you know. I mean the, the relationship I, I, I would argue is still world's best practice in terms of the tripartite style arrangement between Holden and HSV and HRT in terms of that joined at the hip um, scenario we had going, which was, you know, the brainchild of, of, of Crenna. So, you know, for all the reasons and all of the, all of the stuff, it made it made sense. But the the biggest learnings would certainly be to, to take more of a backseat position in terms of the day-to-day runnings mm-hmm. and for it, to have not shortened my driving career, probably. I mean, the the demands around shortening my driving career were consequential to to all of those external business demands around being able to write enough sponsorship and being able to operate, you know, a, a high level team. Bloody hard. We've just come from, you know. Craig Lowndes stopping full-time driving in, in Newcastle, which is a, a, a major uh, point in the history of the sport. Very difficult thing for, for someone like that to do. When you reached that, that moment, where were you and how difficult was it to, to make that call? So a couple of really significant things happened for me. I, I mean, I genuinely wasn't enjoying it as much as I should be. and I Had all that other stuff worn you down? For sure. I reckon if you if you make the analogy of a of a car and a fuel tank, you know, I was I was down below a quarter and I was getting to the red zone and and wasn't wasn't thinking about it 
um, with the same level of passion as as I should have been, and I wasn't enjoying it anywhere near as much. And 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 it was for lots of reasons. It was it was not just around the demands of having to employ lots of people, or the demands around the factory status from Holden. Um, you know, Tom and I, and it really wasn't Tom and I. It was mostly Craig Wilson and I who were uh, disputing financial things of those days, and um, it had a, a quite a you know profound impact on what I wanted to do we had all these sort of legality issues around the team's license agreement in the day and you know we were making presentations all the time to to validate the structure that that effectively Ray Borat had put in as Holden Motorsport and then um, Tom come in and did a, a management agreement with Holden Motorsport so that whole thing just escalated itself into a, a minefield of drama um which I was sort of holding the bag given that I was the team's licence agreement holder and I was the one that was actually on the board of the day of the business. So I had to resign from the board and, and then, you know, legitimise the team structure and stuff to be able to go and compete. So you think about all that unfolding whilst whilst I'm supposed to be putting my helmet on and jumping in a car. I was, I was far from operating at a level that I was happy with and... Um, and even just silly things. I mean, my, my, my training in those days was basically laps of Collins Street. You know, I, I was spending the national debt on legal costs and, and justifying the team's existence based on um, the, the, the possible breach and, and the issues around whether the team could actually compete each weekend. And for the staff, you know, they, they'd say, oh, mate, you've got to come to the debrief. Well, I'd be back into back into Collins Street when I was supposed to be in the debrief. I mean, not, you know, that, they were really, really hard times. So, you know, and in essence, that was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember after the, I think it might have been Bathurst, where I, I went to the fence and made a mistake by myself. The car was, the car was shit house, and, I, and I, I made a mistake. Wink up, and I were battling for the lead, and I, I went into the, into the Forest Elbow, locked a wheel, and and hit the fence on the outside and I remember when I hit the fence then I thought it's over and it's over I'm done so I, I spoke to Walkinshaw after that and uh, we uh, decided on a timeline of, of, of me stepping away and the, and the whole thing around that in that period was was then what you know what, what am I going to do next how that how that evolves into you know Tom and I had agreed on me being director of racing and, and going and running the race team stuff so that was all sort of reasonably sane uh, up until the point where we got to a stage where he had an option to buy me out and I had an option to buy him out and um, uh, based on a bit of touch wooding um, uh, the GFC was was coming and uh, well and man I you know I was fortunate to sell it to him at a time when when uh, the automotive market in America went from 17 million units to, to, to nine. I mean, it was the biggest, you know, financial disaster probably in history, really. So that was always going to be hard as a factory team. So, yeah, there was there was a lot going on. And, uh, I mean, Oran Park, um, you know, 10 years ago was was the final full-time run. And um, uh, that was, uh, yeah, it was pretty extraordinary times. Did you think about, you know, we're sitting here in your office chatting away and fantastic that you were able to pair with Craig Lowndes and, and co-drive to a, another Bathurst win for him. I mean, that that um, must be coming, firing out of all that, coming through all that. That's that's good tonic, mate. You probably needed that, did you? Yeah, well, look, I did. And, and, and 
actually James Henderson come and grab me and he and Tim Miles and Greg Murphy had, had sort of conjured up a plan for me to go and drive with Murph in 2009. Uh, Jeff Greck was running the team. You know, the, there was a good little group of blokes that I, I knew. him there too, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, well, it was good. And, the, and, the, and I had, a you know, through the course of the year, uh, I, you know, I did a lot of test driving and bits and pieces, so I actually liked it. I didn't feel like I'd been away and I was sort of, I felt refreshed. You know, I started in the media and, and, I, and I was driving in those couple of races um, and... Uh, you know, the car was the car was quite good. In fact, we arguably should have won Bathurst. We missed the safety car right at the end, and we had an eight second lead over HRT at that stage. So um, uh, Roland called me straight after after Bathurst um, and said, uh, "What about coming and driving with Lounsey? So I said, "Yep, let's do that." So he sent me a contract within a week. We'd it was one of the easiest negotiations I've ever ever had, and uh, w- within a week I'd signed up to go and and drive with Craig. So you know, if you think about my career and say you know, across the three decades, basically the time with Gibson Motorsport, the time with H- HRT, and then finally to finish off with Triple Eight, you know, I've been seriously blessed to have driven. A- for the three best organisations in the history of the game. If people go back through YouTube or they go go back through the broadcasts, they'll be able to um, pick up bits of radio chat where Robbie Starr's talking to you and he'd say, breathe, Mark, breathe. Were you really holding your breath and was that a, a thing where they had to sort of tell you, hey, hey, take, take a breather here? Uh, well, we'd sort of come up with a bit of a code to settle me down and, and that was a good one. Um, and, it, and if... if if it was a you know volatile sort of you know key moment in the race or whatever, Robbie would get on that. But I used to say to he and he and uh, Richard Holway to Krusty and and Rob all the time, just just give me give me the breathe. And it was a it was basically code for to have a drink and actually settle down, like just yeah. to, just to stay calm. And and um and it, you know and it worked it worked really well. You know you look at what happened with Dave Reynolds at Bathurst. Mm. Um, Every time that they said that to me, it, it reminded me to, to have a drink and, and it reminded me just to let my hands go loose on the wheel and for me to have a bit of a deep breath and just to get my brain around it. And they timed that properly so it wasn't in some mad, hectic area of the racetrack, but it was it was for a real reason and it absolutely worked. You're in broadcasting now. That's the one of your main focuses. You've got other things, I know, but, I mean... I've been fortunate to work with you guys in that it's it's an award-winning team and it's very much like a race team in many respects. I mean, there are some ultra-competitive people in the background, people that properly know motor racing and they put their heart and soul, their lives into it, just like a um, a race team. Is there anything else that you want to do beyond beyond broadcasting? Could I could I imagine maybe Mark Scaife working perhaps at state or federal level for, um, you know, better road safety or for sporting things. Is that is that something that you perhaps aspire to one day? Uh, look, to be honest, I, I've, I've probably done a bit of that um, through the course of time and those things that I was doing for Channel 7 where we went and did the big road safety comparison with Europe and the way that they teach people to drive in, in Europe and specifically Germany, um, they've been really good things. You know, I, I actually really like that stuff that's sort of semi away from car racing you know I've always had a theory that you know kids should actually have the same ethos around driving as they do if they go to the beach you know swimming between the flags Mm. is something that we all know Mm. Um, but the competency for kids learning to drive is something that you know I think we're We'd We'd shy of the mark, aren't we? Totally derelict, you know, totally derelict. And the system around teaching those young people is is part of, you know, a mandate that I've had for a long time. So, yeah, I've I've done a lot of that with government already. Um, 
Uh, we just done this really big uh, Brisbane Auto Mall, uh, which is this uh, pre- precinct near the airport, which is basically uh, we've got 14 different brands um, and two and a half k test track in the middle of it, um, which is which is going to be fantastic. Um, obviously, the track design stuff that I've been doing through the course of time has been excellent. Started at Canberra and obviously finished up with things like Townsville and, and Newcastle. Um, I want to just go back quickly to the to the point you made about the broadcast stuff because. You know, you, you've lived it and you know the level of intensity around... In some ways, when the red light goes on with the camera, it's, it's sort of a bit racy. Mm. It's sort of a bit... In terms of the similarity, it's it's a bit of the same anxiousness the and, and the adrenaline, the thing that, you know, live TV creates for you. So it's actually... I'm not saying that it's it's complete in the way that it responds and the way that it can fill those voids, but it does actually fill a competitive void. Mm. But... But one of the things that's really powerful in it is that, and Neil Crompton and I talk about it all the time with Larco, is that you, it, it, it's like you want for other TV networks to arrive at the track and compare yourself against them because that's actually what it's about. It's about actually doing your very, very best each weekend. And and we often say, and you've, you've, you know, you've been there when we've been talking about it over the years, where you, you sort of want to say, well, if the Channel 9 and the Channel 7 bus turned up over there, what would they do? Mm. And and to do the very best job is actually quite a competitive thing. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And, and again, it's the level of passion, you know, you, you, you're like it, you know, Jesse Yates has been fantastic at Fox to, to actually have a, a genuine journalist view of, of the world. And then the rapport between the people that are on camera is is fantastic. So you know, I, I really, I really value the level of effort and the people who are si- similar to us in terms of just just wanting the best week in week out. And that's a very much a race team mentality. The automotive industry is going through you know really significant change. Obviously, Porsche in in recent years has pushed ahead with Mission E. You know, we've seen what Tesla have done. Your you know, a significant other thing that you've done along the way is that the current car that we know in, in supercars, people love that V8 formula. As we move into the future, what in your mind is the right mix of of new technologies but while still savouring the thing that we, we love? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And, and Rusty, I reckon that's probably, if you said what are the three key things that the sport's got to do right now... The product plan is, I think, probably the key one. Mm-hmm. So like we did for Car of the Future, you've actually got to go and consider what is the next five to ten years of car company participation and what is what is the right balance of technology versus the DNA that we've got. You know, stuff. Well, yeah, we did so much work with Car of the Future. We did a huge amount of research. We did a huge amount of analysis around other car categories and racing categories around the world and the and the the big ticket thing for us is that basically we pitched between nascar and dtm we've basically put supercars so one's massively technical one's not so technical but it does lots of racing and the racing quality with nascar so how do we you know from an australian version and from an australian architecture standpoint how do we make that market relevant mm-hmm. how do we how do we make car companies um continue to use us as part of their key marketing platforms and you know it's obviously fantastic for Holden to, to remain in the game with, with their new car for Mustang to come back in you know for Ford to be re-energised with that that nameplate and that brand is going to be great um, but it's also disheartening to see Nissan go away mm. because of you know the 20 years that 
they were missing for, based on the regulations, for them to come straight back in with four cars was tremendous validity for, for our game. So, yes, yeah, so the, the, the absolute priority of product plan, then mixing it with your bis- biggest customer because your biggest customer, take all the things away, it's your network TV deals and the reality now the biggest customer in the game is Fox so you have to be able to have the best mixture of uh, subscription TV and free to air and then you have to go and say right what's the right uh, event number because overwhelmingly the important part of how this business is um, administered and valued is about sustainability. Mm-hmm. You know, the viability of the teams is integral mm-hmm. to how this sport continues to create fans. You know, you <laughs> 165,000 people at Newcastle. I mean, it's 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 a remarkable uh, product, and and to me, that product plan is is key. It's fundamental to the future of the sport. A couple of things to finish. Favorite race car of all time for you that you've that you've competed in. What's the one that you love the most? Uh, favourite is the Golden Child, the car that we won, Clipsal and uh, Bathurst in the championship a couple of times. That was uh, that was a car I've got very, very fond memories with. Yeah, what's what's in the Scaife garage right now? <laughs> well, I'm very tame these days. I actually just I just recently sold that car, so a collector's uh, that was that was uh, the car that I kept. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I've just recently sold it, so I'm I'm very tame in terms of my my collection right now. What about a daily driver? Uh, I'm actually in a um, SQ5 uh, Audi at the moment, uh, but that's mostly because I'm a basically I've I've gone from a, a factory driver to a factory school deliverer. <laughs> so so yeah, so I drop my two girls to school each day, and uh, that's actually the most dangerous thing you can possibly do. I promise you. My God, it's like a Shanghai race, um, but it's um, yeah, it's it's the most practical thing that I can use to uh, get them around to school and take them off to the snow. I sincerely hope the girls give you a good Uber rating. Um, piece piece of road or racetrack that you that you most love. It can be a road trip. It can be a racetrack. Uh, I love the run up Arthur's Seat, um, which is down at Mornington. Mm-hmm. So. Um, if you're ever down on the peninsula, which is obviously there's great golf courses and great wineries and great stuff down there. So on the way down to Sorrento and Portsea, uh, when you uh, you drive along the freeway, you can take the alternate route and fire to the top of the hill, and uh, that uh, has been a bit of a racetrack over the years. What do you listen to when you drive, and are the girls okay with Dad's choices? I don't, well, I don't get a choice. <laughs> so, so so my choices are just far and away yesterday's newspaper, and uh, and they control it. Every single morning, they take turns of saying which song they're going to go with, so they have total control. We talked uh, about you know, sort of licensing and driving standards before. Road habits that drive you mad, stuff you observe every day. Oh my god! Well, well, the biggest one is the driving in the in the top lane, in the in the right hand lane when they're you know not even doing the speed limit. Um, that sends me off my bike. Uh, but there's lots of things now. I mean, I, I just one of the things that interests me is that as a a nation and as a as a country, we we are a really polite group of people. You know, we we've got. Great heritage and our social fabrics are fantastic, and all the things that we do, we you know we're all I'm sure all proud of the way that the the country um, has evolved. But if you walk up to a lift or an or an elevator and you stand there and the door opens, 
it's everyone being courteous, you know, oh, no, you go first, no, 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 you, you know, you go, no, no, no. And as soon as you get behind the wheel of a car, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde switch. It's it's like it's this is level of madness that all the courtesy and the nice things go away. They're just gone. And, and if you compare that to Europe, if you go and drive in Italy or Germany or, or in France, the level of courtesy, the actual... The actual level of a competency, but the willingness for them to all drive together and to have a common place, mm. is is magnitude multiplied massively mm. to to be better than what we've got, and and it's and it's very strange. Can't ever think or see you riding a motorbike. Is that that is that, <laughs> is that the kind of thing Mark Scaife would would entertain? I raced um, uh, motocross a lot when I was a young bloke. We had every series of YZ um, Yamaha bike. For, through all the models but um, dad made a commitment with me because he I think he thinks that I've always been slightly mad he um, has always said that road bike land no way mm. and uh, we, we, we shook hands on it a long long time ago and I've been faithful ever since <laughs> great stuff mate it's been fantastic to walk down memory lane thank you so much five championships six Bathurst wins order of Australia medal and a swag of other um, very well deserved recognition congratulations thank you thanks Rusty cheers Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.